Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 14. End of the Line Fire Engine 98 vibrated as if it was driving on an endless road of deep potholes. The motor finally died. The truck rumbled along on momentum alone. Clarence heard the newly energized roar of the trailing mob. They saw their opportunity to finish the task. He turned to look forward. Ahead, clouds of smoke floated up from shredded bodies and mangled motorcycles. A yellow-skinned behemoth rushed straight for them. Klimas, your knife! The seal offered it up handle first. Clarence took it, saw that Klimas had a blood-covered hand pressed hard against the side of his neck. Tim, help Klimas! Clarence felt the cabin shudder from impact, heard the crunch of breaking glass, the deep-throated growl of a monster, and the scream of a man. He slid up and onto the cabin's roof, Hands and legs spread wide to try to stay on the still-lurching vehicle. He slid forward across the slick, eight-foot-long, bullet-ridden surface. Clarence looked up in time to see the engine bearing down on the motorcycles, the bodies, and the sidewalk and park just beyond them. The truck ground over the obstacles, hitting so hard the cab bounced up, throwing him into the air. He came down hard, face smacking against the pockmarked metal. The knife flew from his hand. The truck's front end plowed into the snow and dirt and grass. The knife skittered across the roof. Clarence pushed forward. The knife slid off the cabin's edge. Clarence reached out and down. He caught it. Half hanging over the roof, he looked into the cabin, saw a broad yellowish back on top of concave spider-webbed glass, and the flailing bloody hands of the man trapped beneath. Fire Engine 98 finally rolled to a stop. Clarence raised the K-bar knife high. He plunged it down into the monster's neck. The thing barked out a noise of confusion, surprise and pain, a single syllable that could have been a question mark. It reared up hard and fast, its head crunching into the cabin roof right below Clarence's waist, knocking Clarence up and forward and off. The frozen ground came up fast and smacked him in the face. Cooper Mitchell had still been facing out the back of the truck and flipping off the horde when Engine 98 hit the motorcycles and the sidewalk curb. The truck had decelerated quite suddenly. Cooper had not. He'd flown across the truck's bed, stopping only when his head smashed into the water cannon's metal post. Tim's hands pressed on Klimas's neck. To his right, Cooper rolled weakly, clutching the back of his head, face screwed up tight. Mitchell, get up! Tim said. The helicopters are here! Tim heard the roar of a crowd. He looked back. The horde was rushing in, weapons held high, blades glinting in the morning sun, not even fifty meters away and closing fast. He took his hands off Klimas's neck, slid one arm under the man's legs, the other behind his back. 
There wasn't time to do things right. Tim pushed up as hard as he could, groaning with effort as he tried to lift the heavy man onto the equipment boxes and dump him over the edge. Chapter 15 The Grim Reaper The horde closed in. They could see the red truck that they had chased across the city, now just fifty yards away. So close. So close. The humans had sprayed them with water. Such a strange thing to do. But the Chosen would dry out soon enough. The Chosen knew the motorcycles had carried their emperor. As they ran, they shouted to each other, in shock, in sadness. He's dead! The emperor got shot! No way he lived through that! Few of them had met the emperor, but they all remembered the emperor's final order. Kill Cooper Mitchell. Forty yards. They saw a small man push a bigger man over the edge of the truck. The bigger man fell hard to the ground below. The small man leaped over the side. Thirty yards. They saw another man stand up in the back of the truck, swaying, confused, his hands clutching the back of his head. As a unit, they all recognized the man. They had all seen the pictures, and many of them had watched the video. It was him, Cooper Mitchell, public enemy number one. The horde let out a unified roar. They had him now. They rushed down the street, so many of them that the humans didn't stand a chance. Twenty yards. The AC-130 was too high up for the engines to be heard. So far away, in fact, that the horde didn't even hear the plane's guns go off. The street transformed into a flashing hell as 1,800 rounds per minute of 25-millimeter high-explosive fire tore into bodies, vehicles, and pavement. The horde started to scatter even before the first 105-millimeter howitzer round landed right on the dividing line of North State Parkway, pulverizing bodies, knocking cars on their sides, and rattling the snow off bare branches. Confusion reigned. People took cover in buildings or sprinted back down the street, moved anywhere but toward the fire truck. They didn't know what was happening. They only knew they had to run and hide. The Emperor had ordered them to kill Cooper Mitchell, but he had given another order as well, the order to evacuate the city. The mob's will broke. The survivors fled, heading for their assigned vehicles, for the cars and trucks and buses and motorcycles that would take them north to Milwaukee, take them east to Michigan City and South Bend, take them south to Springfield, Champaign, and beyond. The exodus began. Chapter 16 Monster Clarence knew he had to move, but his ice-cold body wouldn't react, wouldn't obey, he heard something big land next to him, something that was still making a squealing noise. He also heard Margaret's voice. Get up, baby! Get up! The fog cleared. Clarence reached out, used the shattered front of Engine 98 to help him rise. In front of him, the muscle monster did exactly the same thing. Clarence stood just in front of the driver's seat, the monster just in front of the passenger seat. The knife still stuck out of the creature's neck. Jets of blood squirted out in red arcs that fell on the park's white snow. The monster reared up to its full height, eight feet tall and very pissed off. 
Yellow hands flexed into fists. Arms vibrated with fury, making the blood-streaked bone blades shake and shimmer. Clarence wanted to turn and run, but his body wouldn't let him. It was all he could do to stay on his feet. He was done for. The creature brought its right fist back to its ear, aimed the bone blade at Clarence's chest. I'm sorry, Margaret. I'm not going to make it. A clink of metal on broken glass. Just inches from the monster's left temple, the barrel of a Benelli shotgun slid across the bottom edge of the windshield housing. The monster turned. Fuck! It had time to say. Then the shotgun jumped, and the monster's face disappeared in a spray of blood and yellowish flesh. The creature fell to its back, twitching. Through the windshield, Clarence saw the ashen face of Ramirez. Hooyah, motherfucker, the seal said. Clarence turned, letting the bullet-ridden truck carry his weight as he slid to the driver's door. He opened it. Bosch was slumped down in the seat, covered in his own blood. He was still blinking, but not for long. The monster had torn his throat open. Clarence could see the front of Bosch's vertebrae. Clarence shut the door. Out in the park, he saw a Seahawk helicopter coming in fast, nose tilted up for a landing. Everybody out! He screamed as he stumbled around to the other side. Move, move, get to the chopper! He opened the passenger door to see that Ramirez had passed out again, shotgun still clutched in his hands. Clarence lifted Ramirez out of the truck and started toward the helicopter. To his right, Tim stumbled along, supporting the limping weight of Commander Klimas. Just one man missing, the only man who really mattered. Clarence stopped only long enough to shout over his shoulder, Cooper, come on! In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Chapter 17 Game Over Cooper Mitchell's head hurt really, really bad. He saw the hordes scatter. Despite the pain, he felt elated. He'd won. Suck a bag of dicks, you fucking douchebags! He looked up to the sky, saw a slow-moving plane. Just a dot, really. But whatever it was, it had ended the fight. Too bad it hadn't arrived sooner. Roth might have made it. Cooper had blood all over his hands. His blood pouring out of a cut on the back of his head. He was probably going to throw up soon, thanks to the eye-narrowing throb going boom, boom, boom inside his skull. He grabbed the water cannon's post, used it to pull himself to his knees. He put his right hand down to press up, felt something smooth and hard beneath it, the fire axe. His pistol was empty. For that matter, he didn't even know where the thing was. He grabbed the axe handle, lifted it as he stood. His legs felt like rubber. He sat on the bullet-ridden metal box and slid his legs over the side. He dropped, almost fell when he landed. His right hand held the axe handle. He pushed the top of the head against the ground, used the axe as a cane. There wasn't one spot on his body that didn't hurt. The helicopter, right there. He'd made it. Cooper heard movement behind him. He turned sharply. Not five feet away, slowing to a stop, was the monster formerly known as Jeff. And hiding behind him, head not quite reaching Jeff's massive shoulders, was Steve Stanton. Steve looked terrified. His eyes darted everywhere, but always flicked back to Cooper. Only a part of Cooper noticed this, because he couldn't stop looking at Jeff. Huge body, pale yellow skin gleaming from a sheen of sweat, mouth open, chest heaving slightly from exertion. So goddamn big. And those massive arms, the bone blades jutting from the backs of his hands. Jeff raised a hand to his head. His fingers flipped back imaginary hair. Hey, buddy, Cooper said. He didn't feel afraid this time, which made no sense at all. Jeff was a thing, a thing with fucking bone swords for arms. And yet, Cooper had won. He couldn't die now. It simply was not possible. Steve pointed a shaking finger at Cooper. Jeff, kill him! Skin him! The monster formerly known as Jeff blinked slowly. He took a step forward. Cooper held up his left hand, palm out. Stop right there. It's me, bro. It's Coop. Don't do this. Jeff lifted a gnarled yellow foot to take another step forward, then put it back down. His face was distorted, misshapen into a mask of evil. But Cooper could still read his lifelong friend. Jeff didn't want to attack. Steve's screech tore at the air. Kill him! 
kill that diseased motherfucker! The monster's eyes flicked down to Cooper's feet, focused on something there. Cooper looked down as well, the red axe blade resting against the ground. Jeff looked up again, his eyes filled with the anguish of a heart torn in two directions. He didn't want to hurt Cooper, but he couldn't hold himself back much longer. For just a moment, the monster wasn't a monster anymore. It was the boy Cooper had grown up with, the man he'd gone into business with. It was his lifelong friend, the person he loved more than anyone else in the world. Jeff Brockman closed his eyes. He let out a long, slow breath. Cooper knew, instantly, that when Jeff opened those eyes again, he would give in to his nature. He would become the creature that Steve Stanton wanted him to be. Cooper lifted the axe and stepped forward in the same motion. He swung it high and hard, brought it down with everything he had. The red blade dug deep into Jeff's head with a dull chunk. The monster formerly known as Jeff opened its eyes. He met Cooper's gaze for two long seconds, then the eyelids sagged. The massive body dropped straight down like a yellow sack of boneless meat. Jeff didn't move. The axe handle stuck up at a shallow angle. Steve Stanton stared. The expression on his face said it all. The dude knew he was fucked. He turned to run, but Cooper dove at his legs. Steve hit the frozen ground face first. He screamed for help, but there was no one left to help. Cooper rolled him to his back and straddled his stomach. He slid his knees over Steve's biceps, pinning the smaller man to the ground, a schoolyard bully about to inflict punishment on the class loser. This is all your fault, Cooper said. I don't know how or why, but I know it's your fault. Steve stared up in pure terror, as if Cooper was ten times the monster Jeff had been. And then Cooper remembered why. Oh, that's right. I make you assholes sick. Cooper reached to the back of his head, rubbed both hands hard against his torn scalp. It hurt, but he didn't care. He brought his hands forward, held them palms out so Steve could see the blood. Your turn. Steve bucked and thrashed, but he couldn't budge Cooper's weight. Cooper Mitchell pressed his bloody hands down on Steve Stanton's screaming face. Cooper rubbed it around, rubbed it hard. That was for Sophia. He drove his thumb into Steve's right cheek, three fingers into his left, and squeezed, forcing the man to open his mouth. Cooper shoved his bloody fingers inside, slid them across Steve's tongue, jammed the fingertips inside Steve's gums, and slid them around real good. That was for Jeff. To finish it off, Cooper hawked the biggest loogie of his life, then spit it into Steve's open mouth. Steve froze. He stared up with the blank, disbelieving gaze of a man who had just received a death sentence. He moved his tongue around, trying to keep the loogie away from the back of his throat. Cooper leaned close. That was for me. Cooper reared back and punched Steve Stanton in the stomach. Steve let out a slight wheeze. He gasped like a beached fish, trying and failing to draw a breath. He swallowed. 
Cooper stood, reached down and patted Steve's cheek. And that, that one was for you, dickweed. Enjoy. Cooper looked around. There was no one left. All the converted had faded away into the city. He was alone. He had won. He turned toward the helicopter. Clarence was already in it, beckoning madly. Time to go. Epilogue. Heroes. It was finally over. All of it. Over forever. Clarence, Tim Feely, and Commander Polyus Klimas stood in the Oval Office, waiting for the President to arrive. Klimas was on crutches. He wore a neat, fresh bandage around his neck. Tim was using a cane. The cane's handle was a twisted coil of DNA, the same as Murray Longworth's. Clarence wondered if that meant something. Clarence had asked both Tim and Polyus to be there for this. Ramirez was still in the hospital, but at least he was out of ICU. He was going to live. Clarence hadn't asked Cooper Mitchell to come, because Cooper hadn't known Margaret. Cooper had apparently moved to the Upper Peninsula, as far away from everyone and everything as he could get. That didn't stop him from fielding offers to turn his story into a movie, however. L.A. had been hit hard, but the film industry didn't miss a beat. The Mitchell-Montoya Plague, as the Hydras were now known, had spread through the Midwest faster than anyone expected. Only two days after the Seahawk had carried the five survivors out of Lincoln Park, new batches made from Cooper's blood had been crop-dusted across Manhattan, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Four days after, every major city had received multiple coatings. Just one week after Margaret's death, most of the converted lay dead, their bodies waiting to be collected, carted away, and burned. The Hydras didn't seem to affect the yellow monsters, but that wasn't as big of a problem as Clarence had feared. The monsters couldn't blend in. When they were spotted, it became an instant witch hunt. Special forces handled the task if they were available, then cops, and if neither could get on the job, bands of armed citizens chased the creatures down. Albertson had sent thousands of hydrodoses to China, along with scientific advisors to help manage the massive effort of reaching the entire population. One, Dr. Cheng, apparently, was part of that mission. Clarence hoped he enjoyed it. America now focused her efforts on wiping out the converted in Canada, Mexico, and South America. Europe and Russia had already implemented their own hydro-exposure campaigns and were sending starter doses to Africa, Australia, India, and all the corners of the earth. For once, the human race unified in cause and spirit. But it wasn't all smiles and roses. The final death toll staggered the imagination. Some estimates were as high as one billion dead, although more conservative guesses placed it at only 800 million. It was the worst disaster in mankind's history. China had been hit the hardest, as far as body count went, but experts were saying the world might never know the full death toll in Africa. That continent had seen seven governments collapse, replaced by dictators who had swooped in to fill the power vacuum. The UN was at least a month away from having the ability to do anything about that. As for America, the final death tally was estimated at over 30 million. No disaster in the nation's history even came close. By comparison, the influenza epidemic of the 1918 pandemic 
had killed some 675,000 Americans, and the Civil War around 700,000. Nothing could have prepared the United States for that level of death, and yet the 284 million survivors were working together to rebuild. Partisan politics didn't exist. Racism seemed to be something from the past. All that mattered was helping one another out, putting the pieces back together. Would this new land of brotherly love last? Probably not. For now, however, it made the recovery process an amazing thing to behold. The Oval Office door opened. President Albertson walked in. At his side was Murray Longworth, carrying two small black lacquer boxes. The President shook each man's hand. Gentlemen, the world owes you a debt of thanks, he said. I can only imagine what you went through, and I can only empathize with the grief you must feel. He looked at Clarence. Agent Otto, I do wish you'd reconsider and let us share this moment with the nation. I think the people need to know who their heroes are. Clarence shook his head. I prefer my privacy, Mr. President. Margaret would have wanted the same thing. Albertson nodded. Very well. He smiled at Klimas. Commander, fortunately, you don't have the option of telling me no thanks when it comes to public recognition. I look forward to the Navy Cross and Medal of Honor presentation ceremony for you, Chief Ramirez and Lieutenant Walker. Thank you for what you have done. The world owes you a debt that can never be repaid. He shook Klimas's hand. Albertson turned to Feely. And as for you, Director Feely, I'm glad you will let us have a little pomp and circumstance for tomorrow's presentation of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Love me some pomp, said Tim, and I've earned all kinds of circumstance. Clarence turned to him, surprised. Director Feely? Tim nodded. He held up the cane. As in the Director of Special Threats. Clarence turned to Murray. Murray shrugged. I retired. I'm getting too old for this shit. Albertson frowned. Mr. Longworth, please. Sorry, Murray said. Tim nudged Clarence. Can't wait for you to come back to work, Agent Otto. Seeing as I'm your new boss and all, you can call me Daddy. Albertson sighed. Oh, Director Feely, please. Sorry, I'll be a good director from now on. Scout's honor. The president turned, held out a hand to Murray. Murray gave him one of the black boxes. Albertson faced Clarence. Agent Clarence Otto, for your service to the country and to the world, I present you with a Presidential Medal of Freedom. The president opened the box. Inside was a golden medal on a blue and white ribbon. Just a piece of metal and some cloth. Meaningless. Maybe someday Clarence could appreciate it, but not now. The president smiled. Shall I put it on you? No, thank you, Mr. President. If Margaret can't wear hers, I won't wear mine. Very well, Albertson said. He closed the box and handed it to Clarence. Murray handed the president the second box. Albertson opened it. Clarence Sato, it is my greatest honor to bestow this award for a measurable service to the nation and to the world and for quite literally saving civilization, if not the entire human race. I present you with a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom 
for Dr. Margaret Montoya. Clarence stared at it. It was the same as his, exactly the same. So why did this one seem so much more important? He reached out a shaking hand and took the box. He closed it, held both boxes together. Lights gleamed on the black lacquer. The president offered his hand. Clarence shook it. Your wife saved us all. I will personally see to it that everyone, everywhere, understands what she did. The hatred she suffered from Detroit, that's gone, Agent Otto. Margaret Montoya will be remembered as the savior of the world. Her life and her death will be celebrated forever. Margaret Montoya, his wife, his best friend, the bravest person he had ever known. She would never be forgotten. She would be remembered as what she truly was, a hero. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.